Hello there. Welcome to our program for Thursday, and this is the 21st of September. We are just a day away from the official start of uh, autumn for 2006, and we are into the uh, the beginning of another program with Ernie Tannis on ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution. We're not counting the number of programs that we've uh, successfully uh, aired here on Chin at 97.9, but I believe, Ernie, it's uh, 87? 86 today. Oh, it's 86. 86 show. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, it's beautiful. I can't believe you had this idea. Come on in and talk about Alternative Dispute Resolution, and uh, here we are 86 weeks later, and we're still going yeah. with phenomenal guests every week and uh, today is no different in fact we have uh we're feeling very very safe today we have deputy chief uh, larry hill welcome back uh larry you've been a regular guest here it's always good that you take time out for uh, helping the public understand what's going on with the police force well thanks thanks very much ernie and we also have um sergeant rick uh, kendall i think it's your first uh, live radio broadcast is that right that's correct Ernie. Uh, well you're looking very calm and comfortable and you're nicely uniformed up so uh um, we're very, very fortunate that both of you took time out of no doubt very, very busy schedules. Um, and I know uh, Larry last night there was a quite an event at uh, Parliament Hill. I think there was a Muslim forum. My wife Yumna uh, said she really <laughs> enjoyed talking to your wife, and you were there. And what was all going on there last night? Well, it was a, 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 a an Islamic art exhibition and um, and a Quranic uh, uh, exposition. So it was. Uh, it was a, a, another night to uh, to meet more people in the community and to learn more about Islam. Well, that's terrific, and um, I guess there was discussion about um, the, the the great teachings of Islam in terms of the moderate uh, voices to work with people and so on. And um, the, the, on the first segment, we'd like to talk about big picture thinking, and I know that we've talked before the show about um, um, how sometimes groups are um, profiled. And how in, you know both unfortunate and often illegal that is, and uh, I think that happened with the Lebanese community back in the '80s. Uh, I remember that very much. But, um, um, but just before we get into that, though, I want to just tell our listeners more about our guests. Uh, Deputy Chief Larry Hell began his policing career 30 years ago in Ottawa. Since that time, he has risen steadily in the organization as an experienced officer, uh, walking the beat as a frontline officer, where most of his career has been spent mainly in uniform patrol, constable, patrol sergeant, and platoon staff sergeant, administrative inspector for community policing. He is currently responsible for operations support overseeing 643 officers. Wow, civilian staff incorporated in the emergency operations division, which we're going to talk about today, support services and criminal investigation, and you were promoted second in command in August 2000. Congratulations. Thank Larry you. Hill has demonstrated a long-term commitment to the community. Indeed, Larry, I think we all know every time, hey, Gary, every time we go out to any event, we see Larry Hill there. He's quite an ambassador for the police forces. Indeed, and uh, if you get a chance before, I just as an aside, before you uh, you continue, uh, ask Larry to show you the pictures of him wearing the kilt. He looks stunning in it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, 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 it's great. Anyway, I have a line on that, but I better not say it. Um, <laughs> his steady and quiet commitment to the diverse community in Ottawa is evident, and the respect he has garnered from communities across the city. I remember, Larry, we had that event for the Lebanese community a few weeks ago with the mayor there. We had hundreds of people in chambers, and I was—I had sent you an email how impressed I was when there was one point in that evening, it looked like, you know, I was a little concerned, and you were there quietly. Before I knew it, there was a couple of uniformed officers, very professional. They positioned themselves 
perfectly and everything was fine. I mean, the professionalism was fantastic. I wanted to thank you for that. Your unwavering support, Larry, for community policing places you at the forefront of innovation and policing. It's 14 years with the uh, tactical unit, operational member, team leader, explosive disposal, squad commander, and senior officer. <coughs> You've been um, a related criminal investigative experience in court security patrol administration and overseeing youth and hate crime we'll be talking about youth in a minute as a senior manager you served as executive officer to the chief of police and in charge of patrol support you are chairing two key canadian association of chiefs of police committees and the steering committee for law enforcement for aboriginal diversity your wife is a aboriginal heritage too she's a lovely lady it's barbara right yes yes that's yes true. you got a lovely wife barbara and a son john and um you're, uh, <clears throat> you do a lot of uh, work with the Aboriginal People's Committee. We have also, uh, very glad to have you here, Sergeant Rick, um, Kendall, right? That's correct, Kendall. Thank <clears throat> you. You're in your sec- 23rd year of policing. Wow. In the city of Ottawa. Your career back in, started in 1984. You were with the Gloucester Police Force before the amalgamation. Your duties over the years included patrol, traffic enforcement, break and enter, traffic escort, collision investigation. In 1998, you were seconded to the Ontario Police College for a 13-month period as an instructor in the basic constable training program. Upon your return to the City of Ottawa, you were transferred to the Professional Development Centre. Your current duties are within the Professional Development Centre and you're an officer in charge of the use of force and police vehicle operations section. And the reason I... (laughs) thought of the topic today was a very tragic incident in Dawson College in Montreal last week where that um, young woman was um, was killed in there and I think the, the public, the listeners would uh, like to know about uh, the Ottawa Police Force and its preparedness for this kind of thing. So I'm wondering if I can leave it to both of you to talk generally about the police force, its makeup and um, what kind of um, uh, general preparations do you have when emergencies happen like this. So I just, you know, if you could uh, Larry and... Uh, Maybe I'll start with uh, the general description of the police service and how it's structured. Um, we have, there's there's three main components to what you see and what the kind of response that you 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 might get with the the police service. First, when you call nine one one, the officers that arrive at your door or at the the situation are our frontline emergency response officers. Those are officers that you see out in, in marked police cars every day and they are deployed on a 24-hour basis, seven days a week. Second level of response would be uh, uh, district policing. And we, those officers, about a third of the, of the total number of officers assigned to the patrol area of the police service, are uh, mandated to look into, well, to support the front line first and foremost, and second, to look at uh, solving identifying and solving community problems that might not make their way to the 911 system but are of concern to communities more longer term projects the third level is your specialty squads response and that's the area that i'm mainly uh, in charge of right now mm-hmm. so that would be if patrol needs support whether it be investigative or tactical or canine support they would call on the people that come mm-hmm. under my area of command oh wow okay that's uh <laughs> It's pretty vast. How many p- uh, police officers are there? Is that the number that I read out at the beginning? No, that's just one directorate worth of police officers. There's another 700 in the patrol area, and we have officers in other areas, corporate services and, 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 um, and, and other areas. So all totaled, we have a little less than 1,200 sworn officers on on the Ottawa Police Service. And um, without getting into whether the resources match the demand, I know that's not an issue for us here today, but ge- generally speaking, can you say, like, uh, when you look at other police forces across the country per capita, 
is Ottawa police consistent with that average or uh, per capita? Per person, we're, we're we're in the low end of the of the larger police services. Oh, okay. So. I can assure the community that you're getting the best bang for your buck. Well, I know that uh, I feel very comfortable with that. Um, Sergeant Rick Kendo, I'm just curious. Um, you know, everybody wants to make a difference in the world, not just a buck. And uh, I've just met you for the first time today. I'm so fascinated by your career and everything. I'm just wondering what inspired you to become a police officer and how do you feel about your job every day? There's so much, I mean, inherent danger now today. Um, I asked one police officer the other day, I saw him, he said, RCMP, I'm sorry about your calling. He said it's part of the job, and it was like really quite professional. But I wonder, would you mind talking a bit about um, your own your sense of your what you do for the community? Well, I, the, the, to answer the question of why I got on the job, I, it's, um, it's almost uh, 23 years ago, and I, I really couldn't, couldn't pinpoint the specific reason I can't say I've always wanted to be a, a police officer. It was just one of those things that um, developed once I finished high school, got a, got an interest in it, and started to uh, explore the possibility of working, uh, you know, not just in Ottawa but uh, elsewhere in the, in the country. So it wasn't specific to Ottawa. So um, uh, once the interest, I got the interest. It just kind of festered and and it just grew, and then I became more motivated to to uh, keep trying until I was successful. Um, the, the nice thing about the job, um, it's the job. Uh, somebody asked me about a week ago, they said, you've been on almost 23 years and, and you, you still like your job. And I said, absolutely, it's a great job. And they, they said that was kind of strange to, to talk to somebody who's been doing the same job for 20, almost 23 years and, and uh, felt so good about the job and, and, and their career. So um, the job itself is very interesting. It's challenging, but it's interesting and it... Uh, uh, you, you know, you know, you make a difference out there, not just with the community, but the officers that you work with. And um, uh, Gary, you've been on the job for thirty years. I mean, uh, Gary, <laughs> thirty plus, thirty plus, <laughs> 30 plus. <laughs> and I do. I'm like, I enjoy my job. I love my job because yeah. it's not a job. If you, if you love what you do, you never have to work a day in your life. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Deputy Chief Larry, uh, you know, you hear you have an officer like this and this sort of motivation every day. I'm just wondering if, um, again, you don't get to see the human side of this profession, but um, I know when I go into you know, my office, I do mediation. I've been a solicitor for 30 years, but I've tried to change what I do just to get it, you know, keep more innovative and futuristic. But what do, uh, what do, how do the officers think about the danger of the job? I mean, I'm just wondering, like what happened last week, it can happen any minute at any time. Uh, your life's on the line, really. Like it's one a very unusual job that way. So, how do you? Is there any kind of training or um, discussion or preparation for that aspect? It's a very unique profession in that way. Well, I'll, I'll start. Uh, Rick can uh, jump in. Um, nobody wants to dwell on those those types of things, and I think. <clears throat> I recognize the same kind of uh, of approach in the Canadian soldiers when you see them being interviewed from the same unit where they just were victimized by by a, a very tragic event. <clears throat> These soldiers are trained to go into a situation a certain way, and you don't uh, think about the potential danger mm -hmm. at that particular moment in time. You're thinking mechanically about how I'm going to approach this, always with safety in mind, and to look after the people that you're either going in to protect or that are around you, your colleagues. And uh, You may dwell on this afterwards, and, and I know we have supports for people who, uh, post-traumatic mm -hmm. situations, uh, that's when these kind of feelings sink in. Yes. 
I was going to, you know, there's a post-traumatic stuff. I know that, um, again, I don't want to dwell on it, but I just think it's a, it's a, it's part, I think the public should be uh, very respectful, as I think we, as I am, and I'm sure Gary is, about that part of your job uh, where nobody can be more grateful than to have such a quality police force with a caring police force. But you don't know when you read somebody just goes to stop a car or whatever, is there... Any training about how to, is there any like red flags? Can you give an insight to our listeners? Or how do you know whether it's something or when to call back up? Or how does that work? Well, it's important that we don't become complacent, first of all, that, you know, after stopping vehicles uh, for six years or seven years that you're, you don't lose the edge and you can't become complacent. Um, but we call them threat cues. You're, no. you're, you're looking for specific things that are unusual or behaviors that are unusual, body language, um, and and that that kind of helps you um, be a little bit more guarded, and you you. But the the safety never changes. You always have to go, in, go into a vehicle stop with the same amount of enthusiasm. As far as you know, um, it's my life on the line when I'm stopping this car, whether it's a a young person or an older person, because it may not just be the vehicle and the occupants inside it, but it could be something exterior too. Uh, the in the environment that you're actually stopping to uh, the vehicle in, and unfortunately for us, that's often the case where vehicles are, are stopped on, stopped on the road, and it's another vehicle that uh, actually causes us some uh, some concern and uh, and or injuries. Ernie, uh, w- one thing that's come to mind, and I'm sure many think of it as well: uh, spouses and family of police officers. I mean. When you fellas and you ladies uh, in the in the Ottawa Police Service go to work every day, uh, who knows what what's going to happen just around the corner? So they must be very apprehensive of you heading off to the job every day. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And um, as Deputy had mentioned earlier, you're you're thrown into a situation that is um, unexpected, and you're thrown into it, and you you have to make quick decisions and you re- you would uh, react appropriately to the situation as it is presenting itself because of your training and your experience but it's the aftermath um, again just recently somebody asked me how do you go into a uh, an insecure establishment when there's alarm going off where you believe somebody's inside there how do you gather the courage to go in well it, the job just you just go in but then after it's over with when perhaps maybe somebody's apprehended in in in, in the uh, the commercial business, that the reality sets in, and you go, "Holy smokes! There was two of them, and one of me, or there was three of them, and they had a, a weapon of some sort." And that's when the reality sinks in, and, mm-hmm. and you say, "Wow, that that was close," you know. And that, that's 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 what keeps us sharp, though. Yeah, it's in the moment stuff, isn't it? Yes, yes. You know, and I was thinking the other day, and I don't know why I was trying to picture that incident the other day when the police surrounded the house and the, they, they went in and they went with the dogs and everything. There was nobody in the house. The guy somehow escaped. I don't know what the details were, but I was trying to envisage being an officer, police officer, in a house where you don't know what's around the corner and everything. What kind of, um, I know there's threat cues, but what kind of training is there to sort of how to move and what to do? I just wanted to get some insight into that. It must be such specialized work absolutely when you're thinking about you know your uh, your noise that you're you're making but you're also listening for their noise mm. um your flashlight uh if you have your firearm drawn um there's certain firearm uh, safety practices that you have to have in in place you don't want to be walking through a building with your trigger uh, with your finger on the trigger um uh, you know approaching 
doorways and you don't want to breach an open doorway first without making sure that when you walk through it knowing that you may pers- uh, possibly be uh, silhouetting yourself that you're not actually giving yourself mm-hmm. up yes. so it's very very you got to be very very uh, uh, cautious when you're moving through a building that you don't know remember you don't know this building you don't know where the doors lead you don't know where the rooms lead you don't know what's behind that door yes. and uh, so it is a challenge well, you, th- you think it's challenging coming to work here, eh, Gary? <laughs> well, actually, when I, I, I be careful when I step through the door into the studio. <laughs> I have to be very careful because every day is a surprise, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, there's a scene, uh, Silence of the Lambs, I don't know if you remember that movie where the officer Forster is down in the basement and she's got her goggles on. And I, um, these momentary things, I mean, um, is there, um, when you say about post-traumatic uh, syndrome, is there... When the when the training happens for police officers, there must be some psychological profiling done in terms of appropriateness. I was very I was, the reason I mentioned that um, is I want to tie it back to the story we're going to talk about in the second segment. That uh, General Hillier commented that the person who killed this woman at, actually went to the uh, applied for the military and he was uh, deemed to be inappropriate. I thought, boy, what a great screening! Um, how do you screen officers in terms of the men and women that apply? There must be a ton of applications. I don't know how many per application get in. Is there anything you could say about that and how people apply? How do you screen people that aren't – thank goodness they screened him out, but unfortunately he had a gun. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, <clears throat> first of all, don't get me started on our recruitment uh, program. <laughs> uh, we're, we're always looking for good candidates for our police service. So uh, anybody that's listening that uh, has a desire to call us, uh, just call our information number in the red pages of the Ottawa Citizen and connect with uh, okay. our diversity and race relations section. We'll, we will champion with you and make sure that you go through the process. We're always on the lookout for candidates because we're in competition with every other private and public institution right it's now true. for good candidates. Yes. So I'll, I'll set that one aside okay. here. We have an extensive selection process and this is uh, pr- the same process that you go through for Ottawa Police, you would go through for Toronto Police Service or any other Ontario Police Service. Uh, there's an initial sort of physical and very uh, cursory psychological testing and you get a certificate after that and you can apply to any Ontario Police Service, basically. After that, it's a more in-depth process with, with a lot of background checks, a more, a more uh, in-depth psychological test. And, and evaluation so that the people that we are getting now are f- far superior to when I came on. Um, and these people are ready. They've had, generally speaking, a, a wealth of life experience. And they're ready to hit the road running, whereas it, people in my day and, and the, those that preceded me needed a lot more nurturing and we had a lot more experience on our in our working groups that compensated for for that lack of uh, life experience. So it's quite an in-depth selection mm-hmm. process. It takes a long time. How long does it take? Well, it can take up upwards of eight or nine months. Wow. It, de- it depends. And, that's, and you know that works against us because if you've got a, a uh, job that also uh, has the same pay level and, and maybe the same level of challenge, uh, that people will opt for the quick the quicker uh, the quicker hit in that case but you know what going back tying it to what we were just, uh, talking about previously every officer that I've ever known 
will go towards the threat as opposed to going away from the threat because that's why we joined the job. Wow. To see and do things that very few people do. You know, it reminds me of that fireman from New York after 9-11. He says, well, people in a fire run out of the building. We run into the building. Exactly. It's really That's quite right. something. And yeah. I'm wondering, uh, Sergeant Kendall, before we break at 97.9 FM here in our 86 show on alternative dispute resolution, if, um, have you noticed any difference between when you applied and the applicants now in terms of um, the uh, screening process or the quality? Or, uh, do you have any observations on that? Uh, yeah, the, absolutely. It's quite more. It's a lot more in depth, and um, it, there's quite a, a a series of background checks that that take place. And the candidates themselves really have to be committed. And along the process, some of them drop out, and you know, and they've probably dropped out for some reason or another. And um, so the process itself, I think, helps to weed out okay. some people. Okay. And then we just because you get hired. Um, we're all humans. We, we, we display certain behaviors. We all like to talk. And even after you're on the job, you can only keep certain characteristics hidden for so long. Oh, and yes. when you're in a, in a tight-knit group, group of people, um, those behaviors sometimes expose themselves. And then there's sometimes consequence uh, to those behaviors by way of follow-ups and so on and so forth. And then, so again, the, the process allows you to weed out people even t- after they're hired uh, and you're hoping that you're you're getting the top uh, quality uh, oh. quality people. So do I gather from what you said, and both of me can answer this? Is there a probation period then after? And in terms of uh, how long is that probation period? And can you give a little statistic for our listeners of those that might be interested? Is if you can, out of uh, say a hundred applicants, how many make it in? How long is the probation period over? Is there any statistics about how what percentage stay on after that? Or uh, and what's the turnover rate? It's uh, the. The rate of, of acceptance in the police service runs at about between one and two per ten applicants. Oh, okay. mm. So it's 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 a uh, it's pretty pretty competitive. It is. It is. And is there a probation period? Yes, there is. How long yes. is that for? It's it's a year now. It used to be a year and a half. Or is well, it it, still? they keep changing it, but okay. uh, it's now <laughs> uh, it's now six months from the time they finished the Ontario Police College segment, and and up to that point they've been on for. Just over three months, so you're looking at a at a uh, a window there definitely that we can continue to observe people. I know the two of you are, are like uh, veterans, but what's the turnover rate generally in the police force? Do people say is it a life career? Is there a, is it a large turnover rate? Is there anything on that that you can shed light on? I'd still like to think it's a life career. We do get people now coming in with a a career already under their belt. And I believe they would be in for the long haul. A few people have changed, but f- for the most part, I believe it's a life career, career. for most people. Well, it's amazing. We, we're beginning to see a trend uh, for the future that uh, the, the, the people that will be applying now and in the future perhaps see, their, see a career as being with several different organizations doing several different things because they're multi-skilled people. We would prefer to retain those that we have because it's quite an investment in uh, in training and uh, experience. And you can't trade experience for anything in this job. So we would prefer to retain people and mm-hmm. we are working very hard to in anticipation of the kind of mindset of the of the newer newer generation being an old guy myself uh, older. looking back older yes of course. Um, we see that we have to have uh, things in place that will keep people with us, um, the um, I can tell from your own career paths. One of the I guess advantages of the uh, police force or the auto police force is there's uh, potential for growth, for advancement. Um, 
is there a point where you're sort of deadlocked in something or is there always room for new opportunities if someone's thinking of uh, becoming a police officer? Go ahead. There's, there's always room for, for, for changes. There's the, the windows are always there, the opportunities. You just have to apply yourself. And because there, there are um, uh, limited spots, uh, it, oftentimes the competitions get a little bit more difficult, but you still have the opportunities. And, uh, you know, it, you know and there's not too many other careers out there that would offer you that kind of wide mm-hmm. array of opportunities. However, once you start to increase in the rank structure, uh, and you, you start to get promoted and, and so on, your your doors close. There's certain things that you would never be able to do then mm. otherwise once you get promoted. Well, for any listeners or people they know that, you know, you're welcome to apply. And uh, before we close this segment, we talked about threat cues, and I want to talk about a very sensitive subject, but it is a multicultural city. And I remember years ago, uh, Deputy Chief Hill, I talked to Deputy, Deputy Chief Bickford, I think he was uh, on the job years ago, and we had a session with the Institute for Conflict Resolution about policing cops and kids program and conflict resolution and so on but one of the thing a story that was told was you know one of the officers said i never believe there's social there's profiling in our city but one day his son came home with a, a friend of his who was black and he was in a, a fancy car and it was pulled over and he said i never realized before he said he was pulled over because of his profile and we talked earlier and i know you're very sensitive to this and it's something you must have training on like the lebanese used to be profiled there's other cultural groups uh, that are profiled that always bothered me when I see headlines like that. Can you just comment about that there isn't that kind of thing that goes on or how do you train people not to react to that? There, people are human and they see a certain cultural group or an ethnic group or a skin color or, or even a religious affiliation. Would you mind just taking a minute to comment on that? I know it's a sensitive subject sure. but I think we should really address it. Maybe I better take this one. Um, what? First of all, it happens. To, to say it doesn't happen is is simply putting our head in the sand, and we've got lots. Of, there's been lots of examples of it happening. Uh, is it continuing to happen? We hope now at at a reduced uh, rate. But um, the the way to deal with that is to first of all change the face of our police service so that we are very diverse ourselves. That in yeah. itself reduces very the inclinations. To have your own life experience, however you were raised, intrude on your professionalism as a police officer. And we ask our officers to be 100% professional. That is, if you're going to stop a vehicle, in your mind, you better have the rationale, legal rationale for stopping the vehicle. Mm-hmm. If it's based on the skin color of the, of the occupants of the vehicle... That's not a good reason to stop that particular car at that time. You have to, in your mind, say, okay, I'm stopping this vehicle for these, these reasons, and stop the vehicle, and then communicate that to the occupants. In a vacuum, the occupants are thinking, well, it's got to be profiling, when the officer had three reasons why mm-hmm. they, they stopped that vehicle. So we, we're trying to teach our officers to communicate why they were stopped in an effective way. Well, that's great. You sound like General Hillier. I heard him talk about they want the military to be more of a mirror of our society, and that's what you're saying too here. And just before we uh, close off this segment, I, w- I will do a confession. After uh, <laughs> high school at Lisgar Collegiate, myself and Ralph Tate, we have both applied for RL2P, Royal Officer Training Program at Kingston. It was three days of testing, and I wasn't um, accepted. And I was asked why, and they said because I failed a psychological profile. They said I wouldn't submit to authority. I would question rules and orders, and you can't do that in the military. You have to do it. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, here we are, and uh, we'll get into our second segment about um, Dawson College and what the police in Ottawa are prepared to do to find, prevent, and manage situations like that. 
Hi, this is Cheryl. Listen to us weekday mornings from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. Hi, what about me? Oh, hey, Wally would be there too each morning on Caribbean Exposure, Chin Radio 97.9 FM. Charty B and Always in Motion invite you to enjoy the music, the memories, the magic, the mighty sparrow. Thanksgiving weekend, Friday, October 6th. Catch the Mighty Sparrow live at St. Joseph's Parish Hall, 151 Laurier. $20 advance tickets available now at all community stores. The Mighty Sparrow and the Moses Revolution Band with special appearance by Kale at Charty B and Chin Radio presentation. If you have a legal question and you'd like to address it to an expert, be sure to join Luke Barrick and Gary Michaels Wednesdays at 12 noon on Chin Radio. The program is Legal Talk at 97.9. You are listening to Chin and Ottawa, 97.9, 1234, sunny skies in Canada's capital. The forecast calling for a rainy weekend in Ottawa, but hey, a little bit of rain helps the grass grow and keeps everything green and clean. Here's Ernie with our guests again on ADR on Chin Radio's Cross Cultural Talk. Well, tiptoeing through the tulips and, uh, you know, it's a very um, sensitive uh, topic we're going to be talking about. It is tiptoeing and we got to be on the, the watch here. Uh, we're so honored to have uh, Sergeant Rick uh, Kendall of the Ottawa Police Force with Deputy Chief Larry Hill to um, uh, inform the public about um, the policing. We've spent the first segment. I forgot we were on the air again. It was such an enjoyable segment. Uh, all the information is this very powerful and I... I would like to uh, take this segment um, to talk about the very tragic events at Dawson uh, College in Montreal last week when um, a young man named Kimville Gear, Gill um, went in with a gun uh, or guns um, and killed um, Anastasia D'Souza. May peace be upon her. What a, uh, I can't imagine what it's like for everybody there and also for the police there. And I um, I wanted the angle uh, we want to talk about here, and I'm going to leave it up to our uh, two um, experts here. In terms of training, <clears throat> uh, preparation, uh, I learned something today which I think the listeners are going to find fascinating. The headline in the Globe and Mail uh, about the funeral this week is students begin a healing process with the first steps inside Dawson. There's a side story about how the Quebec police started checking this website out and found a 15-year-old boy who, who issued a death threat and they arrested him. So I, I'm going to ask the two of you to, to talk about three aspects. Uh, what you call threat cues. Uh, is there any kind of, what kind of conflict resolution techniques are being used? And I think Deputy Chief Hill, you mentioned that sort of a, a new area that's done in child pornography. What lessons have been learned from this, maybe from even the OC transport incident? When a call comes in, um, how many officers are trained? How can they get there so quickly? What is the training and, 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 and how does that whole thing work? And I understand there's a lot of lessons that have been learned about not being on the periphery. Maybe you can 
give our listeners some detailed examples of that. And then the other part is the post-attack intervention, which I think the students felt was missing that night. <clears throat> there was no um, post-trauma uh, counseling and so those are three areas. I know they're large topics. I wonder if I could just leave it to the two of you to sort of walk your way through those subject matters in this segment. Maybe, Rick, uh, you can start with the, the training that uh, we're, we're doing. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm just going to uh, follow up on, on some comments that Deputy made earlier with and, and the fact that we mentioned the threat cues. We, we, we have some preventative training in place currently that with the school boards, and uh, we call it uh, threat assessment and there's a fellow by the name of uh, Kevin Cameron from Alberta, and he's uh, an expert on that. Uh, he works closely with the FBI and the Secret Service, and, and uh, he's doing some phenomenal work. And uh, the school boards here in Ottawa have um, have contracted Kevin. He's come in. He's trained a number of our officers, our uh, school, response, uh, school resource officers and um, school officials, to, to assess threats um, in a preventative fashion in the schools so that if, if in fact, um, a student comes to them and tells them about a website or they hear about certain uh, chat groups talking about things or they see behaviors in the school themselves, they're able to address those and uh, prevent potentially um, serious incidents from occurring so that that work is actually just taking off. Oh, wow. And, uh, and we're very, very excited about it. It's a partnership with the Ottawa Police and the school boards. We have 23 school resource officers out there and these officers are full-time in the schools. Oh, really? And uh, they're doing a great job. Um, there's that le- there's that level of, of education and training. The next, uh, the more recent one for us in my my office immediately is is the first responders training where we're dealing with situations where individuals are going into either uh, educational institutions or into uh, sporting venues or uh, commercial business or workplaces or whatever the case may be, and the officers are arriving on a scene. And there's a there's an individual or individuals in the building, aggressively hunting down innocent victims and either causing serious bodily harm or death. Mm. And as the officers are arriving, they're getting this information that it's actually taking place now. It's occurring now, and uh, this training that we have uh, we have delivered to our officers this year now gives them the skill and the confidence to go into any one of these buildings, and um, seek out these these perpetrators and uh, either neutralize them, have them change their course of action, have them give up, have them uh, barricade themselves, whatever the case may be. And and that's uh, a big part of our training right now presently as we're, that we're doing with our officers. Thank you. Um, uh, when we were talking earlier, um, could you uh, lead our listeners through the sort of practical things? You're, you're, you're talking about the negotiation that goes on, the... You told me some information that was news to me uh, about um, how many officers are prepared at any point in time to do that. I always thought there was just a special squad that did that. And from the time you get a call, the police, can you walk us through exactly what happens in terms of the response to a call? Like in a Dawson College, does that happen in Ottawa? What exactly would happen step by step? Right. Uh, To go back to the conversation we were talking off air, um, traditionally we would respond to a call. Um, we would set up a, um, a containment and we would t- attempt to isolate the incident and then enter into negotiations and resolve it that way. The conflicts that are happening more common now, the environment, the climate that we're in now is where the people aren't at a position where they're, 
barricading, they're threatening to cause uh, bodily harm or death, they're actually doing it. Mm. So this training allows not a specialized unit, but any uh, first responder officer, and there's, we have 700 of them in Ottawa. Wow. Every one of those officers has this training. So as they arrive on a scene, they quickly do an assessment. And if these tactics are deemed uh, to be necessary, they gather up in groups of three, four, or five, and they enter into the building and they engage the uh, the suspect or suspects. Other units would arrive and they would deploy in in either a containment fashion, a rescue fashion. So if there were injured individuals in the the, biz, uh, the the building, the structure, rescue teams would go in and remove them and take them to a casualty collection point where the first aid could be administered. So this 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 philosophy or this practice is slightly more. You know, it's slightly different than our traditional arrive, contain, isolate, negotiate. We're actually arriving and the actions of the perpetrators are requiring us to go to this step. And uh, I like to refer to it as a, it's a controlled aggression. You're going in, but you're under control. You're in a team of environment. You have your job. You uh, have your responsibilities and you're going to go in and you're going to ag- aggressively hunt down the perpetrator and... Uh, uh, have them um, isolate themselves or, or, or uh, barricade themselves somewhere or uh, you would have to neutralize them if if that is required. How would you know how many people to deploy? How does that work in terms of uh, sort of the management level? I mean, I'm sure the officers have to respond to command structure. How do you know how many to deploy and how do the officers know when to ask what they call more backup? How does that work in terms of a process? Because you have to work like really in the moment. That's correct. When I, the situation would dictate, um, you know, the structure, what kind of a building are we dealing with, the institution, um, the time of day, and and the the amount of resources that are uh, immediately in that particular area. But as soon as the call goes out, um, at any given point in time, we always have X amount of officers on the road, and we will always have a minimum of. Um, you know the required number to go in on any in, on any given day in a, to form one of our, our teams to go in and, and enter into a, a business. Whether the officer upon arrival deems three is sufficient, they will go in in team of three. Uh, whether it's a, a situation where he's got enough resources or she has enough, enough resources, they may deploy in, in, in teams of five. Mm. And uh, as they go in in larger teams, they have different roles, and uh, they are able to do different jobs as they're going through the building. And the training that's done is that do you do um, mock um, interventions uh, like in any, like in any kind of training in any profession? Do you do you walk through a lot of uh, scenarios? That's correct. Our our uh, the training our training is uh, twenty hours in, in duration, and the majority of that fifteen hours of it are is actual practical skill building mm. scenario based. Uh, training and our teams go in, and we take little itty bitty, little itty bitty steps. We we show them little bits of a time at a time, and then they put it all together as the the days progress. And by the end of the day, uh, they go in with confidence and skill that the day two days before they they, they wouldn't didn't have. they didn't have they wouldn't even have dreamed of having or, or doing. Dude, I wish we had more time because I'm really so fascinated by this. I think the public is so interested to know they have a, already a comfort level with a great police force, but to to get the sense of that. Do you, do you um, try to bring in like experienced officers who have been involved before? You don't have a choice. You work. I was amazed to hear what you said as I clarify that all the, like over 700 police officers, 24 hours a day. So 
there's not like one tactical squad unit. It's like everyone is trained to do this. But do you try to find someone who's been through it before as an experienced officer to come in, or is it you work with what you have on, on, at that minute? Those experienced officers come into play significantly during the training process. Um, but when the real time, the real deal is upon us, anybody after they've received the training, they can step up to the plate and, can, and take on leadership roles and uh, and do the job. Learn how to swim by being pushed in the water, as they say. Um, without, I mean, I'm not asking you to armchair quarterback or second guess or anything, but it sounded like what happened in Montreal was very professional. I can't believe that it was only in a few minutes the policemen, the police officers were there um, trying to read the paper to try to get the, in the mindset of the police command structure and what they had to do. Like, do you get? Do you have lessons learned from that? What would you observe? Like, I was wondering about. You know, it wasn't clear to me whether. At first, they said the police officers shot this uh, killer. This, the other said, another one was that he killed himself after the policeman went after him. And then, of course, the police are always under watchdog. Every time there's a, uh, a shooting, they have to be studied and everything else. How does that work itself out in terms of um, when you're on the spot there and um, um, w- when you when you hear about what happened in Dawson, would you contact them? Would there be a discussion? What lessons would be learned there? How did, what are you, yeah. do you have any observations on that incident? Yeah, I think you've got three questions there. And, and uh, the first one, uh, will we learn from their experience? Absolutely. We're going to give them their time to digest it, everybody to work their way through it, and get over all the, uh, the, the, the post-traumatic, you know, the impact of all that, and, and to have the, the incident uh, resolved uh, in its entirety. And then we'll... We'll explore what what happened, what took place, what did they learn, and uh, in our community, the policing community, we're very fortunate that we have that ability to to resource with each other as far as what what we learned, lessons learned, and uh, how best can we do what we do now. So you would interact with the Montreal Police on this? Would that is that something you would do? We have an excellent relationship with m- almost every Canadian police service, including Montreal. Also, there would be like a, a maybe a debriefing uh, on on an incident like Absolutely. this. Or yep. um, uh, t- yesterday and today, I've got Peel Regional Police officers uh, with my team today and yesterday going through uh, our training, and they're hoping to bring back some of our um, uh, some of our experience in the training to their organization. So that that's just another example. But absolutely, we have connections with Montreal. We take courses together, and we will be learning from that experience like they have learned from our OC Transpo incident. Now, um, when I read correctly, is it true that any time an officer pulls a gun that there's an investigation about whether it was necessary? What, how does that work in terms of being... Well, the police... I'm just trying to imagine in the mind of a police officer, not only do you have in the moment real time, real deal as you call it, you know, you got consequences to what's going to happen after that. How does that play out in in, in the in the decision making? Well, um, every time a police officer pulls a a weapon out, his firearm or his his or her firearm in public view, they must put a report in. The report is very depending on the situation. The report can be very brief or or more in depth. If use of force is used, uh, a report similar report gets gets filed. If the use of force causes uh, significant injury or death, the Special Investigations Unit takes over the whole case. We have to back away, and they take over the scene. That's arm's length. That's right. Yeah. It, it is a non-police provincial agency that comes in in all cases like that in Ontario. So uh, we conduct a parallel investigation, but they 
uh, what they say goes. We have to. We can't even comment to the media without their permission. Oh, that's amazing! And it's in the training. Then is it, are police um, when they when they get training about that part when they pull a weapon in public, they're going to be looked at. Does that? How does that weigh in their decision making in the training process before? What do you say to the officers before they pull that weapon? What do they have to? When you're in real time like that, how do you weigh it all together? We uh, the training. There's di- different ways of calling or referring to the training, but it's uh, it's a combination of your training and your experience. Um, we call it uh, experiential thinking. We call it the stimulus response training. So, in other words, if a certain situation is taking place and I'm I am required to draw my firearm, I know that. I, you know, I'm going to be cognizant of my muzzle, where it's pointing. I'm going to be aware of what's behind my, my, my target. I'm going to keep my finger off my trigger until I decide to pull the trigger and not before. All these things work annually in their training, and it just becomes a way of doing business, and it just becomes habit. It's, it's just a response to a certain stimulus. And is the training, uh, is there upgraded, like in any other profession, is there required upgraded training for officers on a regular basis or is it? Yes, we're mandated by law to, uh, to train in the elements of use of force every 12 months. Okay. So they have to qualify every 12 months in certain areas of judgment, defensive tactics, tactical communication, conflict resolution, use of force, firearms, and uh, it, so it, it's every 12 months. That's um, that's great. And in terms of conflict resolution, um, you know the movie The Negotiator. And um, <coughs> excuse me, um, is there somebody who's the lead negotiator in a in an incident like that? How does that work out in terms of maybe you you hear about this all the time? They're phoning the person, and um, I know some people have done that. They're uh, trained to be negotiators. Some of them aren't even police officers or military. How does that work in terms of who leads the negotiation with someone in a building? How does that get managed? I think probably deputy, you probably be able to answer it better. I, I don't have a whole lot of involvement with the negotiators and or their their training, and it, and, it, and it they work in concert with tactical a lot of times. And we we have a a, a system, a, a command system that's uh, specific specifically situational based. So it goes from who's going to be the incident commander at the scene and all of all of their supports. But we're talking about a prolonged incident where you have a threat that's. Uh, uh, contained in a, in a situation where you start negotiating. Before the negotiations start, we have communication with whoever is involved. And that, any officer can take part in that. The negotiators will work alongside the person communicating because that person is, has a certain rapport with, with the individual or individuals. And then they will ease into that because they're trained to do that. And these are police officers who are who receive upgraded training to be negotiators and they we send them to other other police services and to other on on other courses to maintain that sort of taste for for doing this so that they're not on the shelf for too long without using their their skills and ability. Okay, so that's good to know. Uh, here we are. Uh, I'm negotiating with uh, Gary Michaels here. Great minds think alike and fools seldom differ because I was just going to mention that um, we are here with Deputy Chief Larry Hill and uh, Sergeant Rick Kendall on 97.9 FM Chin Radio on Alternative Dispute Resolution, our 86th show. Um, because it's an ADR show, of course, I'm very specially interested in this conflict resolution way back when in the auto police force in terms of the training in Canada on this when we were doing our work in Aquasasti with the Aquasasti police force during their civil strife. Um, our group, the Institute for Conflict Resolution, was on site. I was the mediator 
um, a conflict resolution consultant with the Mohawks. I learned a lot of lessons, and but the Aquasasti police joined up with the Ottawa police. They did some um, joint discussions and so on. Um, does that? Does that? You mentioned other police forces. Do you work with other Aboriginal police forces? Um, and negotiation is such a key. Everything is about persuasion. I mean, no matter what you do, we communicate and negotiate all the time. Does everyone get negotiation training, or you say there's special training for the negotiators, say in an in intense incident? How does that whole area work out in terms of conflict resolution, negotiation, training, and interfacing with other um, cultural communities and different police forces? Well, you've got a, a, a really um, a lot of questions. A, a lot of questions. I wish we had more on, time. You got to come back. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Well, I'm going to leave the actual training for officers okay. up to Rick, to, okay. and I'll talk about the cultural. Okay. Well, the uh, I can speak from my office specifically. We have done work with some of the um, the nations, the First Nations um, uh, use of force trainers. They've come into our office, and we've done uh, train the trainer programs with them on aspects of use of force. And uh, but it's primarily to do with the application of use of force and tools we use. Um, so, but it hasn't. It hasn't. Uh, I personally haven't been involved in anything that is deals specifically with a uh, conflict resolution training, other than tactical communication, which is always a part of any any uh, element of our training, whether it's baton training or weapons training, um, public order unit kind of training, and that that that, that kind of uh, those those topics. Uh, tactical communication is part of it, um, so we have had some uh, interaction with uh, First Nations, but uh, I'm not aware of anything recently. Well, it's curious because I remember talking to the commissioner of the RCMP in 1990 at the time, and he was talking about the RCMP was doing training. They, I think he mentioned that it takes up to many years to. It's not just one year; it takes many years to train and monitor and help bring a force up to speed, um, that kind of thing. And they did have a cops and kids program. That was part of the police training in your 40-hour, like there was a one few hours or a half day where the youth and the police interacted. I don't know if that still goes on. I mean, it was a great idea. I I, I don't think it's going on right now, although I've, I've heard a, a lot of talk about restarting that. Oh, it would be great. Yeah, it would be. Um, but, you know, the, our biggest challenge is finding the time to do the training because just the mandated training for police, all police officers in Ontario takes up all of the time available that we've got factored into uh, the police officers' work, yearly work uh, hours. So it's always a delicate balance. If we add more training, we're taking those officers off the road, and people like to see the officers on the road. So it's always a delicate balance. Something has to be taken away for us to add training at this stage. And there's the budget aspects of it, too. There's always the budget aspects. Um, Now, we got about three minutes left, so I wanted to ask you two things. One is I'm very curious about the cross-cultural interaction with the auto police and other cultural groups. I know there's a committee, I mean, a police ratio. A diversity and race relations. Committee. Yes. Maybe you can mention that. And also, if we could take a minute each, or just talk about your vision for the future, what you hope could be done, or what you can tell the, the listeners about any plans for the future of the police. What, do you, what are some of your aspirations? Maybe you can start with the cultural stuff. And okay. Then uh, well, we have a, a, a specific section that deals with community relations with respect to our diverse community, but we're—I mean—that's—that's—that's that's, that's a specialized fu- function, and and they're just a catalyst. They bring people together because obviously three people can't do it for the whole whole city of Ottawa. So we want more and more officers to buy into this and to also establish their own relations, their own networks. 
and to uh, to uh, foster the philosophy that we're here to serve everybody. What, what, what in a short time? What would be a vision you would have uh, for the future of the police? For what else could you would you think? Well, we have needs to, to take, happen. We have to take community relations to the next level, mm-hmm. and what we've done with Ottawa that no other police service that in Canada has done is we've actually had the community in decision-making or decision-sharing roles with our police service, which is way outside the box. If I, well, if I talk about this in Toronto, that they look at me as though I have two heads. This is, this is the police service. You know, our outreach recruitment program has a co-chair relationship. We have Carl Nicholson of the Catholic Immigration Center from the black community. He and I sit on the steering committee and make decisions for that program. That's well, quite unique. So uh, that's the vision of the future: is more community involvement in in uh, the decisions that police services make in s- better serving their communities. Well, you know, in Toronto, they think the world stops at Scarborough, but the reason why you do have two heads, you're so smart. Yes, you were uh. so smart here. The, 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 uh, now you're going to have a little final word here, uh, uh, <laughs> Sergeant Rick uh, Kendall uh, and uh, and Deputy Chief Larry Hill. Thank you both for being here. But I'll have you, what would be a vision for, that you would give to the public of what you hope could be done in the future with the police force? Well, I can. Our, our uh, diversity and race relations program is 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 evolving. It's developing, and I know recently I've booked in some time with them to speak on use of force and uh, the use of force continu- continuum uh, with their with their group. So that's progressing, and there's definitely some some uh, partnerships there happening. Um, I'm very excited about the, the threat assessment program that's being established by the school board that that they're working with the Ottawa Police and CHIO and where that's going to take us. And, and so I'm very excited about that. Um, and then just real quick, wrap up on those two questions that yeah. we about Montreal. Did the MUC responders, the officers there, do a good job? Absolutely, they went in there because they went in, there, in, in that situation with confidence and skills. Whether they shot the bad guy or the bad guy shot himself, the bad guy, his 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 intentions were altered by those officers going in there. Yes, okay, and good that's point. Important. Well said. Oh, that's important. Yes. And my last comment would be that um, schools are safe, safe place to be, and uh, so nobody should um, think otherwise after this incident in Montreal. Schools well, are still safe. Well, for a first time live uh, uh, interview, did great. You should be very proud, uh, Deputy Chief. Thank you very very much, and uh, to the chief and the police Thank force. You. And Gary Michaels is policing me right now. And before <laughs> I need a threat uh, squad in here, I better turn it back to him. Thank you very much. It was an excellent show. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you all. And uh, as as Ernie mentioned. Uh, Rick and uh, Larry, you are uh, most welcome to return to Chin Radio at your convenience. We'd love to have you back as guests. Thank you again.